The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everybody. This is Douglas Burdett, host of the Marketing Book Podcast, and this is another special bonus episode. As longtime listeners know, each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, but occasionally... I toss in a bonus episode like this one, so there's no extra charge. I'm kidding. This is a free podcast. But if you want to send me a bottle of wine, I'm not going to send it back if you know what I mean. I was recently interviewed by my friend Josh Feinberg on his new B2B digitized podcast, and he is such a smart, thoughtful interviewer that I wanted to share the interview with you and let you know about his new show. Enjoy the conversation and let the bonus begin. Welcome to the B2B Digitized Podcast, where leaders of B2B technology startups and scale-ups learn how to use digital transformation to differentiate, educate, build trust, improve competitive positioning, close sales faster without compromise, and scale revenue growth. Now here's your host, Joshua Feinberg from SP Home Run. Hi, I'm Joshua Feinberg from the B2B Digitized Podcast, and I have with me today a very special guest and good friend, Douglas Burdett, who is host of the Marketing Book Podcast and founder of Artillery, a marketing consultancy based in Norfolk, Virginia. Douglas, thanks so much for joining me for the podcast. Welcome. Good to reconnect with you and and say hi to Jennifer for me. I will, for sure. So... I think the first place to start, what I'm super curious about is I've known okay, you. Okay, I know what you're going to ask. Those yeah. charges were dropped, Josh. Okay. <laughs> oh, awesome. you're not going to ask that? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the uh, first place I wanted to start is I've known you probably about seven or eight years. What led you to originally want to start a podcast about marketing and sales books? And I know it was originally marketing, but it's morphed into the critical relationship that marketing and sales now enjoys together. Yeah. I think after about 60 interviews, I finally had my first sales book, which was New Sales Simplified by Mike Weinberg, which is a book that member HubSpot would recommend that to us as the one sales book and a fantastic book. Um, I've had now had about 50. Um, It's it's an interesting question. And it takes me back to, uh, I can remember a couple of years ago, and actually an author who's been on the show a couple of times, he saw me at a conference and he said, are you making money on your podcast? And I said... Not really, but that's not why I started it. <laughs> so I guess in the podcast world, I'm not doing it right. I, ideally, what you want to do is uh, build a, a, a watering hole for the specific animal you want to hunt. Uh, you want to do something about that specific niche and and then maybe even interview prospective customers for your podcast. What, what I did was I came, uh, I did it for very personal reasons, and that's why I'm probably able to keep doing it. Um, I came from a real advertising background. I worked at big agencies in, in New York City for a number of years and then uh, moved to Virginia and, and 20 years ago started my own firm. And then it was real advertising focused for a long time. But a lot of that started to go away. You know, uh, Unfortunately, a lot of industries change if you stay in them long enough. And so I started to feel less and less relevant, and it really was bothering me probably more than most people. 
like for instance, uh, having to bring a website person to a client meeting and hear them talk about SSL or, you know, <laughs> some, some sign of servers or whatever. And I'm just thinking, or then they start asking about what was a fad, which is the internet and social media. Those are clearly fads that aren't going to. So anyway, the, I, my, my background was in advertising and I just started feeling like I was kind of growing dinosaur scales. And I didn't like that. And I went back to doing what I had done in grad school, which is, you know, reading a lot of books. And I stumbled upon uh, David Maron Scott's, one of his early editions of the new rules of marketing and PR. And that really crystallized where the whole world was going because of the internet and technology and social media and all that type of things. He's now up to his seventh edition in that book. And I felt like I had a second bite at the career apple, like, ah, I see where it's going. That led me to uh, ultimately meet you at a HubSpot inbound conference. I, I, I started going in that direction. We don't buy, we, we buy very little advertising now for clients. We're doing a lot of content and that type of thing. But I remember thinking, I don't ever want to be in that situation again. I need to, I just, I, I hated it so much. And so I had always been listening to podcasts. I always like listening to marketing podcasts. I particularly like podcasts where they interviewed authors of, of books. And so along the way, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should try this. And so I, I started the podcast and the first guest was David Merman Scott. And I interviewed about the first 10 and I had already read all their books and I had even met some of them at conferences, you know, like people like Ann Hanley or Joe Polizzi or Mark Schaefer, the, 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 the really big time authors. They were very generous with their time. I got to about the 11th book and I realized, wait a minute, I'm actually going to have to read each one of these books. It's like taking the wrong exit on the interstate and you realize you can't turn around for another 20 minutes. But it's, it's fueled that uh, desire that I have to want to try to keep up with what's going on. And in other words, it's like a regular program of doing it. So now I'm up to 320-something books and, that have been on the show, and it's good. It, it you know, gives me some idea of what's going on. It's helpful for clients. It's helpful for me. It fills me with ideas. But the other thing that gets you going, and you'll find this as the, you continue to do your podcast, you start to hear from people. And they, they'll say to me, I hear from them now every week, and they'll say, hey, I've been listening to your show for a couple of years. Just want to say thanks. It's really been helpful. Or it helped me get a promotion. Or just these amazing things. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I better take this more seriously. <laughs> I didn't know the impact I was having on people. So now it's got over 2 million downloads, and it's in over 155 countries. And th that's why I started it. But it's really more of a professional development as performance art, sort of a occupational hobby. It's not the main thing I do. And I'm not, there are some advertisers and I, I do need to charge them, but some of that has to do with my time <laughs> that's involved. But otherwise I probably, uh, if you look at, if you look me up under in the dictionary under podcast monetization, there's probably not a picture of me as somebody who's doing it exactly right. Oh, no, you still deserve a huge congratulations for getting to 300 plus episodes. I heard someone a couple of weeks ago talk about the term pod fade where Virtually everyone at some point drops off the cliff at eight episodes, 20 episodes, 40 episodes, 100 episodes. That's amazing perseverance, amazing endurance. And sounds like it's been super helpful for professional development and building relationships. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I, I really, I have such admiration for these people who write these books. Um, I'm sure you collect autographed for Florida Marlins uh, sports memorabilia. Uh, or, or maybe the Jets, I don't know, since you're from New Jersey, but uh, I collect autograph marketing and sales books. And I have such admiration for these people that write these books. I, I don't want to write one. 
I'm too busy reading them, but it's just, uh, it, it, it's, it's so helpful. And I'm a person who at a couple points in my career read a book, particularly two books that the right book at the right time can really, uh, looking back, make a big difference. So if I can help people discover the right book at the right time, that's good. And that's why so many listeners contact me, uh, asking for book recommendations. They'll say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm working on this or I'm challenged on this particular area. Is there, do you know of a book about that? And quite often I'm able to send them a link to an interview about the book and they can listen to it and see if that might be, might be helpful or, or point them to whatever resource would be helpful for them. Like a book concierge, like call down to the yeah, front desk sort of, and say, yeah. I'm, I'm looking for four new books to improve my uh, crafts this quarter. What do you recommend? Yeah. Or like a, somebody like this, this week, um, somebody said, I'm going from becoming a, speech pathologist, which I thought was a pretty good line of work, but she's going into marketing instead. And I said, okay, I know just what book is she, she, you know, or somebody who's a more senior person, or they've just been assigned to a certain task force. And I'm like, gosh, thanks for listening. Have you read this one? You know, if I can, I don't want anyone else to have to read 350 books to find the right one. or two for something that's going to help them right now. It, it only takes a few seconds. So it's kind of the fun thing I get to do during the day is hear from listeners and, and, and make a recommendation or point them in the right direction. I think what's interesting too, is in the five, six, seven years or so that you've been hosting all these interviews, there's been such a dramatic shift in how people view formal education. Even before the pandemic, that big college scholarship scandal a couple of years ago and tremendous amount of frustration over college debt and people rethinking, do I really, you know, $150,000 for an MBA? What's the ROI going to be on that? It's relatively easy for someone to find a few hundred dollars a year to buy a very respectable library of books. Maybe they have an Audible subscription or getting them on Kindle. Yeah. And you know, not that you asked, but that is so (laughs) important. I want to mention something. There have been some, a few books over the years that talk that were more about what marketers should be doing like with their own career and to be successful rather than a specific topic like Google ads or Facebook advertising or content marketing or whatever. And uh, the really and, and in several different studies and books talk about how the most successful marketers are the ones that have a learning mindset. In other words, they're always teaching themselves and an even larger number of CEOs have that. Looking back over some some study that started 40 or 50 years ago, they were very much into self-improvement, teaching themselves. And uh, this is at a time when companies are spending less and less money training their employees, but there's never been a better time to to learn. I mean, like even your audience, you know, they're they're probably pretty focused on on learning something new and and improving their results and 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 their career. And uh there was a video I saw of Brian Halligan, one of the HubSpot founders, and they were the interviewer was asking what kind of it was. I think it was a video about startup culture or something, and they've been enormously successful. And they said, "What do you look for when you hire someone?" And obviously, at a marketing and sales software company like HubSpot, there are a lot of marketers there. What do you look for? And he said, "The number one thing I look for is a learn it all." That's the number one thing they're looking for is someone who. And I, they probably know how to tell. Are they capable of teaching themselves something, figuring it out, and then going and doing it? I just thought that was fascinating. That that was the the number one thing that they look for now, because they're obviously in the technology space. Marketing is changing quite a bit, 
And it, you can imagine it goes really well with an entrepreneurial environment like that, but it's a, a learn it all. Somebody who has demonstrated that they can, they have the desire and the motivation to go teach themselves something. That's why I'm always telling, um, I'm always telling the kids these days, <laughs> go get some of those free HubSpot certifications or a Google certification, put it on your LinkedIn profile. That's a big differentiator. Yeah, we were talking about this a couple of days ago. If you took a teenager in their senior, junior, senior year of high school, and they were taking all of the free HubSpot certifications, and then you layered on a Coursera subscription, because Google has those programs now where there's five or six different certifications like project management and data analytics, where for $39 a month, six months later, you have a Google certificate. And then you really, really break the bank and you go get an executive certificate from a prestigious university and something that's really spot on. And those are like a whopping $2,500. It's going to be your highest budget expenditure. It's like all of a sudden, HubSpot certifications, Google program completion, and a digital analytics certification from MIT or Northwestern or Wharton or something like that. And total cost about $3,000. And you just have to yes. wonder at some point, if you're the dean of a business, especially private schools, are you going to start getting a little nervous that disruption is right around the corner? And I think that's going to happen faster than we expect. That's always the way it happens. You know, there's more and more people are like, what, what are we paying for? But here's something, here's just to add to that, the other side of that coin. Say you're an employer and somebody comes through with that kind of unbelievable self-direction and motivation, yeah. you better snap them up. Um, I, I would hope that they would know about writing. They would be a good good at writing or communicating, but even still that, that, that whole course of action is, is very impressive. Being that entrepreneurial, that resourceful to figure all of that out. You know, it's interesting yeah. too, to even just look at what HubSpot's trajectory has been with the whole investment and Academy over the last decade, going from like one full-time to now a couple dozen full-time <laughs> professors in multiple languages now. And if you go to their course oh, catalog, wow. like it's like trying to reach the end of the internet. I think there's a more discrete number of, few, of a few dozen certifications, but course-wise, it's in the hundreds. And yes. I guess at some point, you know, originally they started with the idea that they were training people to better utilize software, which for SaaS is super important because if you don't use it, you don't get value and you don't stick. But uh, they pretty quickly thereafter came to the conclusion that it was also super popular and important for people that um, weren't customers and may not be customers for a while. Well, and think about it, Mark Killens, who you probably recall, he used to work at HubSpot Academy. He then went to Drift. I'm not sure where he is now. He may still be there. Is he still there? He, um, uh, I remember once he was given a presentation and he showed a picture of a major league baseball pitcher and it said, teaching is the new pitching. And And think about the experience that you give somebody by teaching them how to be more successful. Think about the trust that's built for that particular company and the authority that they must have. And when I was a HubSpot user group leader, I can remember um, there were a number of companies that would come or people came who weren't even using HubSpot. Like there was this one guy from a big tax preparation firm. I think he said he had 11 people in his department. They didn't use the HubSpot software, which is fine. And he said, every new hire, I make them take one of these two or three courses just because it was so valuable. It's free, yeah. um, but that's a lot of goodwill that, that HubSpot builds up there. So, mm-hmm. And it's a, such a great example of really effective content marketing. If you're helpful, you're going to get further than if you're talking about yourself. 
they've a really interesting play too. They've explored in the last couple of years with getting more college professors to use their software in marketing graduate undergraduate and grad courses and lines written in college. I worked for IBM for two or three years on a program that was designed to give students and faculty members very aggressive discounts on what was back in the day, state of the art, IBM hardware, their PS2 systems in the early days of windows and Apple was neck and neck with them at the time and a few other hardware vendors. And the idea was you form all these brand affinities when you're 18, 19, 20 years old and your first time out. And all the consumer products companies were there at the same time. Pre uh, phone cards. I remember that. Smartphones, consumer products like uh, the CD, the record CD, music clubs. um, Oh, Columbia House. Yeah. yeah, I remember having an AT&T card in school. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. And I remember when that that came out. because I have a you know a relationship with the local university, I was hiring interns from there, and I would go in and lecture every once in a while for the, some of the professors. And I remember sharing that uh, with them, and some are receptive, some are not. Um, I think they're, some of them are kind of told what they need to teach. Um, but I also, in the back of my mind, was wondering were they were they threatened at all by this? I, I don't think so. But interestingly enough. I've started seeing Facebook ads from the local university on a digital certification. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it though. If you're sophomore junior year in business school, you use HubSpot marketing enterprise for your course, but you get out and you go work for a small business that's about to install their first round of marketing automation. And you already know HubSpot. Well, are you, is Marketo even on, is Adobe even on the short list? Are you looking at SharpSpring? Are you looking at Infusionsoft? Are you looking at any of these other alternatives or, you learned it so well that HubSpot got first You're mover so advantage. With it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of, um, oh, someone who's under 25, you go set that up. <laughs> like I can remember having a lunch a few years ago with this executive vice president of this big um, shipbuilding company. And they wanted to talk to me. And I remember he then, he brought along to lunch this uh, new marketing person. And she was a young a recent college grad and uh, seemed, you know, very sharp. And I remember at one point during the conversation, he said, yeah, we hired her because she understands the Facebook thing. They weren't even using Facebook. And I almost, and she looked at me and I was just sort of thinking like, you know, can you blink twice if you're under duress? (laughs) (laughs) I know she needed a job. She had student debt probably to pay off and she was very sharp. And sure enough, She's not still there. So she got some experience and moved on to a place, but it was like, okay, if that's what you guys need, I'll, I'll do that for you. But it, it kind of saddened me that there are so many more senior people thinking that they're just such a blind spot as to what, what their marketing people could be doing for them and, and how they could be helping them. I think in a lot of small companies, I see what I call premature abdication, where at a certain size startup scale up small size, probably sub 50 employees, the CEO still really needs to be hands-on involved in the marketing and sales strategy because they just simply can't afford someone that's at a strong enough level with the uh, digital marketing, marketing automation, sales enablement expertise, and knows their industry well enough to be able to completely punt it. But I usually tell when people come to me, they're like, how many, I don't have time to spend time on this. I'm like, okay, well, 
The most important thing is we have to figure out a way to position you as an expert, as a thought leader, as a subject matter expert, who in the company fits that role. Because we can get it to the point where you can make a really big dent in an hour a week, but it's not an hour a year. Um, and there's got to be somebody who, who has a ridiculous amount of institutional knowledge that needs to be captured. You know, all of that gets captured into video. Probably more than one person. And, yeah, usually it should be a committee. And what makes yeah. me nervous is sometimes when they show up and they're selling to a market and there's no one in the company that checks off the box of being uh, enough of an expert to feel comfortable with turning the webcam on and turning the microphone on in that yeah. role. But it's, it's getting them thinking that the first goal with all of this isn't the tools, isn't the campaigns, it's, oh, it's, con it's, con it's strategy and content. This is turning into a support group, and I thank you. <laughs> um, premature abdication, stealing it. I'll add, awesome. I'll give you full attribution, of course, but that, that is so good. And there was a book on the show not too long ago, The Ultimate Guide to Google Ads. When you get up to that one. episode 300 or whatever, I can really start to go out into some very specific areas. I had one on Facebook advertising. And even if you're not a Facebook advertiser or a Google advertiser, those are two fantastic books because the people that are really successful at Facebook advertising and Google advertising are really good at marketing. And they have basically had the basics. Uh, they have the basics down. But there was uh, in the ultimate guide to Google ads, this was the um, Mike Rhodes. He has the largest Google ad agency in, in Australia, I think like the 18th largest in the world. And his last chapter was on hiring an agency. And he couldn't have been clearer. He said, please be careful outsourcing this because there's a couple of reasons. One is you learn quite a bit about your customers and your company through Google advertising in terms all the massive amounts of testing that you can do. But also he was saying that, you know, the CEO or somebody, uh, maybe a smaller company, they should try and do as much as they can because they're going to learn so much and they should never relinquish it. In other words, maybe you work with an agency to help get you started, but try to get it back in house as much as you can, because it's much more than just ads you are learning in real time about, about your customers. So I thought that was interesting. I think it showed enormous you know, authority and credibility and, uh, from, from him. I actually listened to that, that, the interview with Mike Rhodes. Um, oh, you did? On your podcast. Yeah. What's interesting is when I look at that entire category, the most dangerous area for a non-marketer that's hiring a Google ad specialist is when you're working with a small company and they're counting on that one person being their whole digital marketing solution that that person really has to have a good pulse on lead generation and segmentation and nurturing and personas and how this stuff impacts sales opportunities. And the more considerate of the sales process there is, the more heavy, high-ticket B2B it is, the, the more dangerous it is to just end up with someone that can handle the traffic, but can't connect the dots on, um, on everything else. And it, it's like putting together a, a baseball football team. It's like you really have to be able to spread that budget around to have good yes. outfielders, good infielders, good starting pitchers, good relief pitchers. It's all, yeah. in, all in one place. It doesn't work very well in a, in a small company. Yeah. And I think that, um, well, humans want to find this you know path of least resistance, simplest thing. And for a long time, there was a somewhat simple approach that worked for a lot of companies, which is just to buy advertising. Because you had a somewhat more of a captive audience out there and you could kind of interrupt your way in. Of course, now you can't very easily interrupt what people are interested in. You have to be what people are interested in. And the companies that 
there are a lot of companies that still are yearning for that. And they think, I just want a silver bullet. I just want to, you know, I, w- I just want a nail for this one hammer that I have. And it's become, uh, you know, much more complex. And I, I think that it goes back to the four P's of marketing, which is, you know, product, price, place, mint, distribution, and promotion. And so many still think of marketing as just promotion. And the, the truth is marketing now is much more about how you run your company. Marketing is much more about the kind of people you hire and the experience that you give your customers. It, frankly, people don't really believe what companies say about themselves. And you know, the experience that your company your customers have with you, you know, the more that your customers can become your marketing, the faster you're going to get traction. But those aren't simple answers and I'm <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I, I th- you know, it's interesting is when sometimes when people come to me and they already have HubSpot, it's the most challenging possible situation because they're certain they already have the answer and they just need somebody who can press the buttons for them. Mm-hmm. And having to get them to reset and go back to the drawing board and think about what their actual go-to-market strategy is, who their personas are. Why are you in business? Where, where's all yeah. the content to load all of this stuff up? It's like, no, 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 wait, I just need somebody to do that. I'm like, okay, then it's they not, I might not be the right person for you if you just need a technician to press the buttons for you because you're too busy to press them yourself. Well, and also, and I know I must sound like your dad, but you're making the right, right decision there because that never ends well because they don't know what they don't know. And perhaps worse, they don't have the humility to you know, acknowledge that. And they're going to say, well, it, it reminds me years ago at some chamber of commerce function, some guy that owned an IT firm was talking about something on a panel. And he said, advertising doesn't work. I bought an ad once and nothing happened. That always stuck in my mind. And that is exactly who you were talking to. We hired a HubSpot person. How come I'm not minting money? <laughs> People are laughing to sell- keep from crying just so your audience understands that. <laughs> In a sales leadership role too, it's equally challenging if there's not a lack of, if there's not the humility there and the openness to new ideas, because my position is, hey, look, you know, I'm investing 30, 40, 50 hours a year to keep my skills sharp on what I need to do to support a sales team at your size. Can I at least get you to watch the intro to inbound marketing from HubSpot Academy so you kind of sort of get what we're really trying to do here? (laughs) It's a challenge. Yeah. But that's, you know... uh our friend Marcus Sheridan, that's good assignment selling because, you know, in sales, no should be your second favorite word. And the faster you can find that out, you probably save yourself a year or more of heartache and a bad ending. I think the interesting outcome that a lot of people don't think of in a startup in the first couple of years of their business is if you can just get the activity going to get their get them closer to product market fit faster or go to market fit faster. A lot of times they get some very interesting outcomes because if they do the content and the eBooks and webinars and podcasts, if they do all of that stuff, right, they get fans of people that fall in love with their content before they even know what the company does to the point where when they get to the meeting and they're actually talking about their product or service, if they get someone who isn't going to become closed one, the second best outcome is, Hey Douglas, I love what this is about, but you're missing this key feature. And if you added that, I, sign up yesterday and I have five friends in other companies in similar roles who would also sign up. And when you, you walk away with that and you realize that like they just gave you a hundred thousand dollars worth of, of or million dollars worth of free consulting there is the consolation prize for not closing them now. They told you exactly what you need to uh, get with your product manager, get with your engineer, build and come back to them in a couple of months and say, okay, now try. 
Yeah. It's like you have my phones tapped because uh, years back, as I was transitioning away from advertising to digital marketing, I was blogging and I was downloading things and, you know, linking to whatever blog post or landing page was just, just talking about these different resources. And uh, along the way, I downloaded some stuff from uh, HubSpot. And then a month or so, I can't remember, it was in summer, I saw the caller ID, somebody calling, and normally we, we can't answer the phone anymore because it's usually somebody trying to bother us and said HubSpot, and I answered it. And they said, hey, Douglas, um, we saw you downloaded the stuff from our website. Did you find what you were looking for? And I said, yeah. And basically, the conversation went, I love that stuff on your site. I have no idea what you guys do, but I really like all the stuff on your site. And they laughed and said, yeah, we hear that a lot. Could we tell you what we do? I said, yeah, what, what, what do you guys do? I like you. Well, a week later, I was a customer. <laughs> and so that's, you know, that's, that's one nature of, of how it works. But there were um, there are three books come to mind. If a lot of your listeners are, are interested in the, the startup world, and I can provide you with the links to these interviews, but there were uh, a couple of books that were, I, I wish every startup would read. And one of them was called The Ultimate Startup Guide by Tom Hogan and Carol Broadbent, a couple of Silicon Valley startup marketing agency. And I think they only work with companies that are VC funded now. They've done very well, <laughs> but they, it was funny. And they explained where so many startups get it wrong and where they get it right. And the very funny thing in that book at the very beginning, they talked about how the legend of Steve Jobs was the worst thing to happen to startup culture because so many clueless CEOs thought they were supposed to behave that way. He, he was a unicorn. Okay. And then there was another book called Beyond Product by Jill Soley. She's a Silicon Valley marketer. And it was, again, it was, that was a short book. And she explained this idea of you know product market fit in a way that was so crystal clear. And every week she's having to explain this to people who have a lot of money. And these are experienced executives, a lot of engineers, obviously. And they don't quite understand <laughs> where they're going wrong. And I, I remember reading that book thinking, are they, are they really, do you really run into this a lot? And she said, all the time. They, it's just a massive blind spot. And there was a, a third book by, uh, you probably have heard of um, the book Predictable Revenue by uh, Aaron Ross and uh, Mary Lou Tyler. Um, so Aaron Ross then wrote a book after that with Jason Lemkin called From Impossible to Inevitable. <clears throat> and he's in the startup world, all that sort of thing. And those two guys wrote this book, no theory at all. They say, these are the seven things that every hyper growth company gets right. And he actually came on the show to talk about the second, the second edition of the book. Fantastic book. Fantastic. But those were three that they were so clear. And I think all the authors felt like they were probably taking crazy pills for their whole career because they were having to explain the same thing over and over again. But it's just just what you were talking about, product market fit and, and several other things. Yeah, I come across Aaron Russ quite regularly. He puts out great content. He has a company that does outsourced sales development and building uh, calling-based mm -hmm. campaigns. He came from, was an early Salesforce hire. He puts out great content in that area. And Jason Lemkin has that whole Saster conference community, which has been a little more virtual the last year, but I'm sure he's looking forward to it being a more traditional. And he does great podcasting content, great video content as well with uh, entrepreneurs and sales leaders and, and uh, marketing leaders from software companies. All oh, good stuff yeah. to try to figure out to connect the dots. One of the interesting 
areas that I've had to lean into the last couple of years as well is like, no matter how successful your marketing campaigns are, sales isn't supporting and they're not calling the leads and they're not calling them uh, the right frequency and with the right mindset to aim to help. Um, getting that alignment right is super critical. And then marketing and sales can do everything right. But if the product isn't solid enough <laughs> and delivering on all the great work that marketing and sales did to get somebody to close one, then there becomes a retention and monetization sort of problem. So I think the more Mark Roberge really got it right when he said, when you're looking for your first sales hire, get someone that's startup experienced because they'll be used to working in the extreme uncertainty where, uh, mm -hmm. They, they didn't walk in and they weren't the, the 500 salesperson hired who was on version 37 of the playbook. They were there when they had to figure it out and realize that part of their job is listening for product management type of information and relaying that back to the, the team about what's missing and what it takes and being you know, very entrepreneurial internally. Yeah, his, his book, Sales Acceleration Formula, was just fascinating because he, he talked about, um, you know, being the first director of sales at HubSpot when they started. And he was an engineer. He'd never had any sales training, although we both know his dad is a sales trainer. So maybe there was a genetic thing, but it was so fascinating to, just like any entrepreneur or startup person was like, I, I've never been in sales. That's okay. Just do it anyway. So he approached it like a mechanical engineer, which he is. And what was interesting is they would test people. You know, you test salespeople, evaluate them, see if they've got some of the qualities and skills. And so they got going and then, of course, after a certain amount of time, he went back and looked at the ones that were doing really well to see which of the 12 traits they scored high and low for. And the ones that were doing really well actually were people that didn't exhibit very good closing technique. You know, in other words, they, I can't remember exactly what they were, but like uh, they were very good listeners. Curious and, and uh, coachable, right? Or open to yeah, something give them like feedback that. and you gave them feedback and they're able to run with it. And they were selling a product people didn't really understand. It wasn't like there were a sea of 10,000 sales and marketing software companies like there are now. Yeah, that was just fascinating. Very different to be selling HubSpot as a brand, as SaaS, um, 15, 16 years into the company's history compared to like doing year one, year two, year three, where nobody had ever heard of the company or, or inbound marketing, why they should even pay attention. To any of this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure that's why so many of the early employees have done so well. Going on to other things. He's had interesting trajectory too. He uh, teaches sales at Harvard Business School and he's a, a VC now uh, for mm -hmm. SaaS companies helping to rethink the whole model to get the success rate up much higher than it currently is. Yeah. And hats off to Harvard for having a guy like that um, you know, on, on the faculty. There's not much sales taught in schools. Now I come across it every once in a while where there's like competitions and um, like clubs around that, but it's definitely not a mainstream thing where you hear of, of someone, oh, I decided instead of majoring in marketing, I'm going to major in sales. Maybe there needs to be in certain schools um, because you just, it's the challenge with all of this is what you thought you knew five or 10 years ago is largely very irrelevant today. Yes. And I remember in Mark's interview, I can't remember if he said this in the book, but he said, uh, the problem with salespeople is that after they've been in sales two years, they don't want to learn anything new. And I thought, whoa, strong words. He goes, no, I've seen it. You know, and so, and that's a problem. Like you talked about, like, let's say, and again, you know, in the marketing agency world, there's been a number of times where we would do everything right from a marketing standpoint, but they weren't following a sales process and then they would blame us which is why at, at some point a couple of years ago, I just said, all right, that's it. 
we're not going to work with any more companies if they don't have the other stuff squared away. And if we have to help get them squared away first, we're going to do that because they think, oh, let's just do some marketing. It reminded me of what he, what he said about some folks, that they're, they're being resistant. And actually, Marcus Sheridan talks quite a bit about this because he does a lot of sales training and he, helping people come around to uh, a more modern approach to helping customers that you're selling to. And in uh, Mark Hunter's book, A Mind for Sales, the second time he was on the podcast, he, he talked about how there was this one client where he was doing sales training. And they said, Mark, there are these two young guys and we want you to spend a little time with them and find out what they're doing because they actually thought they were doing something illegal because they were selling so much. These were younger guys. And he said, okay, I'll, you know, it's not what he was there for, but sir, I understand, you know, and it turned out they were completely legal. They were spending a lot of time with marketing. They were talking to them all the time. They were, you know, collaborating with them. They were giving marketing ideas. They were getting ideas back from marketing. They were providing a lot of helpful content that marketing had been producing, and they were crushing it uh, from a sales standpoint. I thought that was a very funny story. And they were they were like the two youngest employees too. This is uh, what we're doing now is part of the muscle that modern sales professionals need to be taken seriously. Being good on video, being good in moderating webinars and podcasts and good with yeah. using, using video as a report. And the interesting thing too, is one of the silver linings of what we've gone through over the last year is I think people have, it's forced people to become more comfortable, but I think it's also dialed back the perfectionism that I used to see with companies where they felt like, Oh, we can't get started with video. We're, we don't have the budget to bring in a professional videographer for a couple thousand dollars for the day. I'm like, um, no, you can start like with what you have. If you want to get really fancy, buy a better microphone, get a little better lighting or something like that. But you know, that's a few hundred dollars and you own all that stuff. But uh, the bigger the bigger thing is the mindset shift of just starting and, and realizing that it's all about providing value. Yep. And just to add to that, if you're too slick, I think it hurts. And there were, again, I realized books, so I, I keep thinking like, oh, oh, oh. But the 300th episodes with Jeb Blunt, I think it was the fifth time I interviewed him. He's one of the most prolific sales authors. And he wrote an entire 300 page book on virtual selling. Now, what was interesting though, is it's like he snuck in a really good sales book and everything under the guise of virtual, but it included all the other things you need to be doing, like getting on the phone and all these other kinds of things. But the other thing that was so interesting about his book is that everything that we're doing in this pandemic from a sales standpoint, virtual selling, we're still going to be doing four years from now. We may still get to go visit people, but I think that a lot of people are thinking we don't need to go see a prospect as soon as they express some interest. Maybe a little later in the sales process. Um, you know, the, the idea of oh, let's get let's get a team on the airplane and go meet these people. No, <laughs> maybe uh, you know further down your your sales process. But there was another book back to Marcus. He wrote a book called uh, The Visual Sale with Tyler Lassard from. Uh, Vidyard. And it was, uh, it was one of those books where you just can't argue with the logic. And he just explains, look, this is working really, really well getting on a zoom call and, 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 and you can use video to make buying from you much easier than people realize. I think too, once investors and board members get wind of the fact that so many deals are able to close without getting the team on a plane and 
spending 10, 20, 30 grand to go out and do an in-person pitch. It's going to change the dynamics of it. I've heard Kevin O'Leary mention it a bunch of times also that once he saw it actually work, are really people going to go back to doing this? There may be a small sliver of your market that does need the FaceTime. The question is, does the the client acquisition costs versus the lifetime value really justify it? And what's interesting is in the space we live in where you look at SaaS at the price point that like HubSpot sells to small and medium-sized businesses, they knew eight or 10 years ago that it wasn't going to be a model that supported field sales. And part of the reason I think they hit the tipping point with their IPO and the crazy trajectory they're on is they figured that out pretty early on. It's like there's natural demarcation points where price point is so low that you really can't afford inside sales. And then there's a much wider band where you can afford inside sales, but you can't afford outside sales. You got to wonder now post-pandemic, how big the deal size, how big the lifetime value needs to be to justify still doing field sales. Instinctively, it probably feels like at least six figures. Like somehow mm-hmm. magically, a lot of these deals in the five-figure ranges have been very closable over Zoom and e-signatures. Yeah, but you know they've they've had outbound sales ever since the beginning. They have a whole floor of of people doing outbound sales. I, in fact, when I interviewed Mike Weinberg about that new sales simplified, he is one of the several sales authors who is deeply irritated by people that promote this idea that you don't need to sell anymore, that customers will just come to you, that deals will somehow close themselves, <laughs> which is not true. Salespeople will always be needed, particularly good salespeople selling complicated things. And in that interview, I said, well, you know, Outbound or HubSpot does outbound selling. And I th- he wasn't yeah. aware of that. Yeah. And he said, oh man, I appreciate you saying that because I'm going to be talking about that a lot because not so much in his book, but <clears throat> in, in, in when he goes out into the world and he's giving talks and he's doing training, that, that company kept coming up. Well, pretty quickly, he was able to say, look, guys, th- that's a fantasy that you're longing for that people are just going to call you up and wire you money. You got to have e- a sales it's, team. It's e-commerce. HubSpot has one. Yeah. HubSpot does inbound and outbound, and the outbound fits really nicely with account-based marketing and target accounts. At a certain size, it I think can be engineered with like product-led growth, where someone they have a $49 a month offering, or somebody's buying Dropbox or Google Apps or simple web hosting or something that by necessity almost needs to be something that people can self-serve on. And then there's a wider band at a few hundred or a few thousand dollars where you definitely need some figuring out. The, the, the challenge for a lot of B2B tech companies I see is if people are purchasing without being vetted and qualified, you could have a situation where someone signs up and they churn really quickly because they were never a fit in the first place. So shifting that responsibility to the sales team of making sure that they've properly managed expectations and properly vetted and making sure that there's a smooth handoff from sales into onboarding and customer success and ultimately the salesperson having some responsibility. <laughs> And, yeah, I, I remember and in that, uh, Mark Roberge's book, book, he talked yeah. about how they were wrestling with that. Like, ooh, the, the churn. Yeah. We're, we're making the sales, but we're we're really churning more than we we should. And as I recall, they were thinking, oh, what should we do? And they they said, look, you're going to get some compensation when you make a sale, but you're going to get what like most of it or at least half when they renew after one year. And he said it was almost like overnight they were getting <laughs> better customers. Yeah, they, and I remember they engineered tracking into the products, and that's something a lot of SaaS companies are doing now, also, where they know that there's a certain usage where you've crossed the threshold, and like, okay, you're ninety percent likely to stick now because mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. vice versa on the flip side of like you're two weeks in four weeks in 60 days in and you haven't hit that milestone and you're not using the product at all you're probably an extremely high risk that's the whole idea too of where you have these annual payments or annual contracts you really don't know if you're not looking at the product whether you really have a healthy relationship or not you can get fooled pretty quickly on the financial side and the investors love that but the flip side is if some if the product utilization isn't there it's, it's just masking the real problem yeah, and that's where a couple of books that have been on the show over the years were so interesting. One was The Membership Economy by Robbie Kelman Baxter, and also like Subscription Marketing uh, by Ann Janser, and uh, Subscribe by Teen Zuo, where what's interesting and what so much of the subscription-based companies are hopefully teaching the rest of the world is that it's not just about getting the customer, it's about keeping the customer. So. A large part of their marketing is to their customers to make sure they can keep them. And I can't think of of even a non-subscription business would do well to pay more attention to their customers, uh, keeping their customers than trying to get uh, new ones that are going to leave after a year. I saw that happen in spades in the hardware and software business. If you think about the entrepreneur who started up their business 30 years ago in the heyday of people building out client server networks and Novell network and things like that and offices and selling them a lot of routers and switches and servers. That Equipment. classical, that classical uh, traditional sales professional, a lot of them had a really hard time shifting to selling managed services and cloud services on a recurring basis because it was such a different Yes, a diagnostic process, such a different exploratory process, consultative process, and completely changed the dynamics of the skill set that would work. And what's interesting is a lot of the attrition just simply happened because so many of the people that were hitting that inflection point were near retirement age. Um, so some of it forced uh, attrition with replacement. You, know, you weren't going to hire somebody who was in their mid twenties or who was going to face the same resistance to, "Hey, I want to do it the same way I've done this for the last thirty years of my career." Um, but, <laughs> But it's been interesting challenges too to watch all of that happen. The consumerization of IT and a lot of IT decisions being shifted out the line of business managers throughout organizations, decentralized IT, change the dynamics mm-hmm. of that too. Yeah, and it may seem like a subtle difference, but it's an enormously different mindset. You know, they were actually having to pay attention to their customers. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a, a very interesting thing. And you're going to probably see more and more of the subscription-based products. There's even in the book subscribed, which is really well done. Um, they talked about earth moving equipment. You can buy subscriptions to earth moving equipment. So in other words, I think it was Caterpillar is doing it and they realized, I mean, you still buy their equipment if you want it, it makes sense for you. But with subscription, you have to think doubly hard about what is it that people are buying from us? They're not buying a subscription. They're buying a solution to a problem. So in the case of these massive earth-moving companies, these were companies that were buying these big vehicles. They were paying to have earth moved, and they kind of knew how much they needed moved. So they just bought a subscription saying, we want this many you know, cubic yards of earth moved every month. And the caterpillar was like, "Sure, we'll have we'll have we'll have everything for you there. Just pay us a subscription, and we will we will move that earth for you, and we'll do it on time. And you won't have to worry about equipment. You won't have to worry about employees. Uh, you don't have to worry about insurance. You just pay us." I just thought that was fascinating. The things that people are subscribing to now. 
CFOs love to talk about, and even the sales people that sell um, this type of uh, in this type of business model love to talk about shifting from capital expenditures capex to operating expenditures opex, um, because hmm. there's all different implications to how you measure. And I think a lot of the seeds for this were getting planted as software as a service and cloud services became more popular. But I just heard Dell talking about this a few months ago too, that they envision that the whole future of the company will largely be people um, subscribing to hardware as opposed to purchasing hardware. So it'll look more mm-hmm. like a car lease <laughs> to a certain yes. degree with a certain end of yeah. life and a certain refresh cycle. Some of the um, phone uh Phone plan companies too have already shifted to that where you're paying monthly with a guaranteed refresh when you realize that, oh, wow, you know, my iPhone is two years old. It's really ancient now. Of course, I want the new one. And and instead of having to buy it, they just have you pay a fixed fee per month. And okay, they'll take it back. They'll refurbish it. They'll do something else with it and get the new iPhone model. Yeah. They're selling connectivity. They're not selling phones. Different business. You know? Jobs to be done. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Exactly. So, yeah. And pulling this all together, where do you think B2B as a focus for companies is headed in the next two, three, four years? What do you think we're going to look back on now and realize that something dramatic had changed that flipped the switch that really made such a big difference on how companies were selling to other businesses? Well, for the rest of our working years, it's going to be interesting to see the after effects of the pandemic. Um, what changes did it speed up? Like you're talking about education, healthcare. Do you need to travel three hours to see the doctor if you're feeling fine, but they wanted to <laughs> follow up with you? Um, so from, I guess from a B2B marketing standpoint, one of them we already talked about is the way that I think customers are going to be more inclined to want to get with you on the, on a Zoom call than have you come see them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, can we just meet that way instead of having you come out here? Um, I, I think people expect that are going to expect that more. Um, I think also, you know, when we're so awash in content and there's so many distractions and we're able to tune out so much more than we used to every month, we can probably tune out more things that we don't want. I think the silver lining there is that companies are realizing that they really do have to, uh, focus more on the the true uh, motivations of their customers and what's interesting to their customers because um, they're getting tired of being invisible. So if all they're talking about is their products and their services, which is not not really the way to go, it, it's it's focusing more on uh, the customer. And you know the the most successful companies, and this is uh, recurring through so many of the books that I've read. The most successful cost companies are the ones that understand their customers just a little bit better than their competitors. <clears throat> and when they do understand them, a couple things happen. Uh, one is you break through because you think, oh, they, they get me. They, they actually kind of understand what I'm, what I'm doing. And you sense that they're empathizing with you. But also, when you understand your customers just a little bit better than your competition, you don't have to be perfect at this. It's like what you were talking about uh, earlier. They will start to tell you what you need to do to be successful. And uh, that kind of brings to mind another book, Content Inc. by Joe Polizzi, where he talked about all these companies that built an audience first. And then basically they were told, this is what I want. This is what I need. And so 
if you, the, the company, it's, it's hard for companies to do, believe it or not, empathy seems to be the hardest yet most important word <laughs> in marketing and sales because, you know, humans are kind of self-oriented. But I think that more and more people might start to um, understand that. It also kind of brings to mind that notion you had about the IT guys that have been there for 30 years. It's like, okay, maybe some more folks are going to retire and some maybe some younger people will come along and uh, more digital natives who just understand the, the fallacy of of taking the old approach. There was a book on the show a while back called Sell the Way You Buy. <laughs> it was by an ex-Salesforce guy who was a sales manager and he was telling us people to do a certain thing and then he realized he hated it when people were doing it to him. So he he changed it all up and realized, you know, the, not only were his, what his people were doing is wrong, <laughs> irritating, it wasn't really very successful. So I think there's more people that are going to start to, uh, to understand that. So I don't know. The only thing I know about the future is that, that, I can, that I know is going to happen is that everyone will have flying cars, entire meals will come in pill form, and the world will be ruled by damn dirty apes. I should disclose that I, I'm quoting Austin Powers. That was his prediction on the future. And actually, every year there's a... a there's people that write these blog posts like, what are your predictions for the next year? And I always respond with that and they never come back to me again because I just don't think these, these prediction roundups are you know, always very, very helpful. But it's an interesting question. I think a lot of people aren't asking about that. But I, I think that people, the most successful companies are going to be the ones that are better at using technology to connect on a more human level. Bezos mentioned that a few times in interviews that when it comes to his daily routine, he's not working on what's going to make or break Amazon's quarter now. He's working on what's going to be relevant to Amazon's performance 24, 36 months out. And great for companies to have that luxury. And I guess it really depends on where you are with your competitive positioning and size and capital and, and what, what the role of a CEO looks like and being able to read the tea leaves, the customer insight, and think about the future and entirely new business models. You know, um, another thing that he has said, I've seen him quoted as saying, he can't, he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. He's pretty <laughs> candid about that. But what he's said that he tries to focus on are what are the things that aren't going to change? And that's worked really well for him. Like people want low prices, they want fast delivery, they want guarantees, they want more frictionless experience. That could be free returns or one-click buying or whatever, but he he's found it really helpful to also try to focus. I mean, obviously, you want to see what's where things are going, but what are the kind of universal truths that that customers aren't going to change? And those are, I think, largely things that go back to our prehistoric brain days. That sort of some of the most basic uh, human motivations. Trust is a big one. I think there's still that will still be a barrier for businesses for generations to come. And if anything, it'll be harder and harder for companies to overcome it. Yeah, very true. And, you know, it's like one of those questions that people could ask internally at a company, like, is the decision we're about to make, is that going to build trust or subtract trust from our prospects and customers? You know, is it going to add to or detract from their customer, their opinion of work dealing with us, uh, the experience? <laughs> Part of the bank account. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Friends keep from either give you points or take away points, whether you know about the analytics that goes on in people's brains of how they make decisions and how they navigate their choices. Yeah, it's true. Was it, 
Vince Lombardi, I think it said, there's no such thing as being on time. You're either early or you're late. I saw this in a book that talked about the same concept, which is there's no such thing as meeting customer expectations. You're either exceeding them or you're not exceeding them. You're not meeting them. I thought that was an interesting uh, idea. Customer expectations are going to continue to increase. People expect companies to have superpowers, everything that they've experienced on the customer side, they'll eventually demand on the business to business side and companies have to wake up to the importance of customer of CX of customer experience. Yeah. Folks may have heard of the thing called the Amazon effect. There was a book on the show called uh, marketing to the entitled consumer. Um, Dave Franklin, who lives in uh, Palm beach and ex forester guy, great book. And he talked about how what you just said, Regardless of what your industry is doing, don't pay attention to what your competition is doing because your competitors may suck. If they have a good experience with some other industry, they expect it from you. Whether you can do it or not, like for instance, you buy something, they, you expect an email update saying, we got your message, we got your order, or we finally shipped your order, or your order is going to arrive that day. <laughs> Just simple things like that. Don't make them go and chase that. And so, you know, all these other companies are like, yeah, nobody else does that. That doesn't matter. <laughs> Your customer has experienced something good elsewhere. They want that from you now. And I think there's a lot of things that have happened in this pandemic where people are thinking, well, why, why can't you bring it out to my car? <laughs> you brought my meals out to the car. Why can't you bring the couple of bags of sod <laughs> or whatever out to my trunk? We mulched last weekend, and my sister and brother-in-law were shocked that it's possible to get a pallet of mulch delivered to the house. And yes, it's possible to get a pallet of mulch delivered. And oh, wow. It's probably as for unskilled, relatively unhandy folks like ourselves, if you can move the bag and cut it open with scissors and dump it and rake it, you're 90% of the way there to being able to self-mulch. But yes, these oh, are the I, things I you can you could do on that. your phone. Yeah. Cool. No, yeah, now you've cool added stuff. to my weekend list. Yeah, gosh, because I'd always thought, oh, I don't want to carry those things. And otherwise you have to hire a company and they dump a big pile of it on your on a tarp on your driveway. It's like, oh, interesting. I didn't we have an And actually SUV that probably works out even better for the seller because yeah. they're saving on space and uh it's a it's a high volume, it's a high dollar purchase too. We would have probably had to make four or five trips back and forth to the store to pick up 10 or 20 bags at a time and, and just got it all done and totally, totally contactless. But yeah, these are all just all the crazy that we, our car came up for, or at least came up for renewal and it was done hundred percent without going to the showroom anymore. I guess it helped that we've stuck with the same dealer year after year. So there was that trust already, but yeah, it was all, everything was all done and it was just delivered to the driveway and we signed the papers in the driveway. Okay. So now <laughs> you're going to expect that every time. Every time. Why, That's yep, what you were talking yep. about. It changes. Definitely changes perception. Cool. Well, hmm. Glugs, thanks so much for joining me for this episode. It's been super informative. I think you gave a tremendous reading list to our solicitors <laughs> to build their shelves and, and virtual shelves and Kindles up with keeping up with best practices for what it means to be successful with marketing and sales. Um, I know you're active on LinkedIn. Is that the best place for someone to connect with you or follow more about? Yeah. Okay. I, I go on LinkedIn probably more than anything else. I go on Facebook and Twitter just to see if somebody's left me a <laughs> message. I, in fact, I have a Chrome plugin on Facebook called Newsfeed Eradicator for Facebook, which erases the newsfeed. But I can go in because that's very seductive. You know, they very smart people at Facebook. They want to pull you in 
it's blank. It'll have like a quote from Maya Angelou instead, but I can see if somebody's leaving a message. But on LinkedIn, Douglas Burdett. But uh, what I was going to suggest was that, as I say to my listeners, if if I can help you from having to read 350 books by recommending like one or two that kind of might scratch the itch that you have, please get in touch with me on LinkedIn and I, where we can chat and I'll do my best to you know, send you a link to an interview about a book that I think might help you or or one I haven't interviewed the author about or any other kind of uh, resource. And the only thing I ask is that please include a message. <laughs> Say something like, I saw you on Josh's show. Let's connect. That's all I ask because I'm getting what seems to be an awful lot of spam uh, LinkedIn connections on, on LinkedIn these days. So, uh, maybe LinkedIn will, will figure that out. But if I can help point you to that, otherwise, the, go to marketingbookpodcast.com and you can find some of the, I think it. Um, it's funny, it's on HubSpot naturally. I think it only goes back the last 200 episodes that'll show. <laughs> I can't, you can't hit a button and see all all of them. But uh, yeah, either LinkedIn or Marketing Book Podcast. I'm oh, on Twitter, I'm Marketing Book. But uh, if I can help folks find the right book or resource, um, do uh, connect with me on LinkedIn and I'll, uh, I'll see what I can, find. I can write a, a book prescription. I mean, even in this conversation, you would bring up an idea or a concept and I'd say, oh, oh, in this book, they talked about that or that. So it's like I, my grandfather and uncle were pharmacists and I, maybe it's genetic. It's like, I want to write prescriptions. I want to write book prescriptions <laughs> for people. It's like, oh no, I know just the book you need to read right now. So I enjoy doing that. So if any of your audience wants to do that, um, happy to connect. That's the repositioning of every aspirational trusted advisor and sales professional is the doctor-patient relationship as you ask your prospects <laughs> what their symptoms are and you prescribe. You identify, connect, and explore before you advise as opposed to showing up and demoing first. And yeah, yeah, them. which which reminds me of the uh, – I, I still go to sales training once a month, once a week. Um they can't get rid of me now. I reached a certain point at sales training where I didn't have to pay anymore. And now I've, I've probably, uh, gosh, maybe over 15 years now, but, um, but it's, it's a great class. And uh, there's a joke <laughs> that I've heard where the guy goes to the car dealership and they say, um, hi, what, what brings you here? And the person says, well, I'd like to buy a car. And the salesperson says, have I got the car for you? <laughs> <laughs> No question, you know, no diagnosis, nothing. You're not supposed to do that in case any of your audience uh, <laughs> doesn't know that. So, well, good. Well, it's great, uh, great catching up with you. Likewise. I uh, hope things go well with the show. Let me know how I can, what I can do to help promote it. Sure. Appreciate that. Thanks so much, Douglas. Appreciate it. Take care now and stay safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of the B2B Digitized Podcast. To subscribe and leave a review, check us out at b2bdigitize.com or wherever you like to consume podcast episodes, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube.